I have learned a lot through the last two and a half decades standing next to empty graves, fresh dug graves. Here's just a sampling of some of those lessons. They've not all come easy, but they are still very good and very valid. I have learned that funerals bring families together even when they have not seen one another for years. I've learned standing next to empty graves or graves that are about to be filled that in those moments, feuds no longer matter. They just seem to melt them away. I have learned that no matter how prepared we are, death still takes most people by surprise. I've learned that people grieve in different ways. Some people are very demonstrative in their grief. Other people are quite reserved. I have learned through the years that cemeteries, though well-groomed and oftentimes beautiful places, are places no one really likes to visit. I've also learned that burying innocent children is much more difficult than burying elderly saints. And I've learned that one the hard way. I've learned that funeral dinners are very good things. They bring a lot of healing to friends and family members. And along those lines, I would say that I'm very proud of the teams at Libby Christian Church that work hard to make that happen, not only for families of this church, but for families of the community. They're very good things. I have learned through the years that I have many words to offer to people that are grieving, but when I personally know the person in the casket, those words don't flow very easily. I have learned watching people that the longest drive anyone will ever make is from the church to the cemetery, second only possibly to the first drive home alone. And I have learned this. I have learned that where there is real love, people linger, even beside graves. Where there is real love, people linger. I have seen that firsthand in the hundreds of funerals I have been a part of, and I saw it this past week in the Bible. I want to take you to the very place I was at so that you can see it yourself. We will stand off at a distance and watch a man that loved the Lord linger next to his graveside. Let's go to the Gospel of John, 20th chapter. John chapter 20. Let's start reading in verse 1. John chapter 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were both going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. John's the man who wrote these words, but did you see how he referred to himself? It's quite interesting. Two different titles. He refers to himself as the other disciple and the one whom Jesus loved. 
Worldly editors would call him the beloved disciple. And later on in his book, he would use both of those titles again, the one whom Jesus loved and the other disciple. In this particular case, it is incredibly interesting to notice that he does not call himself John. He calls Peter by name, but he does not refer to himself by his given name. It is almost as if John was afraid to utter his own name in fear that it might make everything real. So John doesn't say anything about who he is. He gives a description, but he doesn't give his name. I hope someday when I'm sitting with him in heaven that I'll have the chance and even the the strength of mind to be able to say, John, why was that? Why didn't you put your name there? But that's secondary to what I wanted you to see from this passage. What I really wanted you to see was the way that John was lingering near the empty tomb of Jesus. Now, he had been at the foot of the cross. That was very, very, very real to him. So real that Jesus actually said to him as he was hanging there, John, I want you to take care of my mother. That's Phil's paraphrase of that. You take care of my mother. Even though Jesus had brothers and sisters, he left the responsibility of caring for Mary in the hands of one of his disciples, the one whom he loved, according to John. The cross was very real to him. Everything that had happened there was very, very real. They had listened as Jesus had said that he would pay the price for all of our sins, that he had to be sacrificed. They may not have agreed with it, and we can see the lack of that agreement all through the Gospels, but they understood it. But the tomb, the tomb was hard for them. John would say in his own words that when they came before the tomb, they didn't know what to do with it. They didn't understand that Jesus was going to rise again. So when they got word that the stone had been rolled away, confusion set in. But we know this, John was lingering near that grave. He was close enough that when he got word, he could run there. He didn't have to get a taxi. He didn't have to line up a chariot. He didn't go find his own pickup. He ran. He was lingering near that grave. From the cross to the grave, those three days, it would appear in Scripture that John didn't want to leave. Peter had even made his way back close to that area, because where there is real love, people linger. But what is so interesting to me is John's own words that he didn't know what to do with the empty tomb. He didn't know how to handle it. I've become convinced through the years that many of us approach the tomb of Jesus exactly the same way. We know what to do with the cross. We just don't know what to do with the tomb. We are familiar with what Jesus did on the cross. He died for our sins. He paid the penalty for our sins. That can be in and of itself a very paralyzing thing for some people to recognize the depth of God's love that he would allow his son to die for us. It's very humbling. It's very convicting. It's a number of different emotions. We know what to do with the cross. But when we come to the tomb, we struggle. We stumble. We linger not knowing what to do. But here's some teaching that I want you to grab hold of. Both are empty. The cross is empty and so is the tomb. And it is necessary, it is necessary for us to recognize both of those things. The cross is empty and so is the tomb. So now I'm going to venture into the realm of my own opinion for just a second. So take it for that. This is Phil's opinion. If you have artwork in your home where Jesus is still on the cross, I think you ought to get rid of it. If you wear a crucifix around your neck where Jesus is still on the cross, I think you need to get rid of it. 
Because if Jesus is still on the cross, we are quietly communicating, passively communicating that he is dying for our sins over and over and over and over again. We are passively communicating that he didn't pay the penalty for all of our sins one time. When we leave Jesus on the cross, we stay completely focused on our sin. So get rid of any artwork like that. Just throw it out. Because we have to get Jesus off the cross. In order to get him into the tomb and out of the tomb, we have to get him off the cross. If that makes sense, shake your head yes. Get him off the cross. Because as long as he is there, we can't get him out of the tomb. And if we can't get him out of the tomb, our relationship with God will never be complete. If we can't get Jesus out of the tomb, our relationship with God will never be complete. I want to show you what I'm talking about. We're going to go to the book of Romans. If you would, turn to the fourth chapter with me. Romans chapter 4. The book of Romans was written by the Apostle Paul to a group of Gentiles in Rome. Rome was not a Jewish state. It was not a place of Judaism. It was a place where Gentiles lived, where non-Jews lived. So a lot of the book is written to Gentile believers, but there are parts of it that are written to Jews, and that's really quite interesting when you look at the geography of it. Why Paul would write to Jews in Rome makes us scratch our head, but the answer is easy to discover. More than likely, there were Jewish believers from Rome that had come to Jerusalem during the time of Pentecost, and when the Holy Spirit descended at Pentecost and Peter preached the message of Acts chapter 2, they heard and responded, and then they went back to Rome carrying the gospel with them, and a church got started there. Paul had prayed and prayed and prayed that God would send him to Rome, and eventually God did. But at the writing of this, Paul was directing his attention towards the Gentiles and the Jews. Romans chapter 4 is a very Jewish passage. That means that it can be kind of hard for us Gentiles to understand. I'll show you what I mean. Picking up in verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? See how Jewish that is? He's speaking to Jewish people. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessings of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Now up to this point, we've talked about Abraham and we've talked about David. That's going to have the attention of the Jewish people. But Paul's about to shift a little bit in verse 9 to where he's talking to us, the non-Jews. Listen to what he says. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. 
and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Stay with me, verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so your offspring shall be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespass and raised for our justification. Now I'm just curious how many of you would say you completely understand everything Paul said. How many of you might venture into saying, that was a little bit confusing? All right, thanks for your honesty. It should have been. It was written to Jewish people. It would have spoken directly to their hearts. However, they were Jewish people surrounded by Gentile people in a Gentile church, just like this is. We're a Gentile church. So there is still teaching in here that we have to grab hold of. We have to grab hold of. So let me break this into three easy bites so it's a little easier to understand. This is an outline of this passage. Follow this. Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 8 teaches that we are justified by faith, not by works. Second bite. Verses 9 through 17 teach that we are justified by grace, not by law. Then verses 18 through 25, we are saved by the cross and justified by the empty tomb. Now, hopefully you are paying attention as we made our way through those three different breakdowns. In the first two, we made the statement that we are justified by faith, not by works, and we are justified by grace, not by the law. That word justified is the word that you have to hang your hat on in order to understand Romans chapter 4 and the entire idea of the empty tomb. To be justified is a theological term that means to make or declare righteous in the sight of God. To make or declare righteous in the sight of God. Now, if you followed that all the way through, then you got to this very spot where Paul says we are saved by the cross, but we are justified by the empty tomb. All of that is found in verse 25. Let me read it for you one more time, short little verse. Who was delivered up for our trespass and raised for our justification. Romans chapter 4 verse 25 has been called the linchpin of the gospel. It teaches us that we are saved by the cross and justified by the empty tomb. 
This is so very important that Paul would drive the point home just two chapters later in Romans chapter 6. I'd love for you to see it out of the English Standard Version or the New American Standard or the NIV, but I really want you to see it out of the message, the translation that Eugene Peterson wrote. It's really good and gives us great understanding. This is Romans chapter 6, verses 10 through 11. Listen to this. When Jesus died, he took sin down with him. But alive, he brings God down to us. From now on, think of it this way. Sin speaks a dead language that means nothing to you. God speaks your mother tongue, and you hang on every word. You are dead to sin and alive to God. That's what Jesus did. Isn't that great? really is. I love the way that sums it up. That's a fantastic way for us to understand the linchpin of the gospel. That we are saved by the cross of Jesus Christ, but we are justified by the empty tomb. Now let's take that first sentence and we're just going to break it down into two more bites. Here we go. When Jesus died, he took sin down with him. On the cross, Jesus took sin down with him. He paid the penalty for all sin. Once for all, it was done. It was done, finished, complete. There was no further action needed. That's why we have to get Jesus off of the cross. It was a one-time event. We cannot leave him on the cross without believing that he has to repeatedly die for us. When Jesus died, he took sin down with him. Now, here's the way that applies personally. Imagine it like this. From the moment you committed your very first sin, for me, that would have been in the crib. My wife, she's still waiting. That's just, she's very pure. It's the best I got, baby. The moment we commit our very first sin, there is red in our ledger. From the moment you commit your very first sin, a price has to be paid to cover that sin. According to the old covenant, that price was blood. Blood had to be shed to take care of your sin. Under the old covenant, here's the way that would play out. You would take a bull, a goat, a dove, whatever. You would take that animal to the high priest at the temple. The priest would go into the Holy of Holies with your animal to sacrifice it on the altar there. But before he could do that, he had to sacrifice an animal to cover his sins so that he could stand righteous before God. So he would sacrifice that animal. Then he would sacrifice yours to cover your sin. And you would have to come back again the next year and do it all over again. And then you would come back the next year and do it all over again. Because the moment you left after that penalty had been paid for your sins, you were going to commit sins again. You were going to have to come back and do it again and do it again and do it again. And the high priest was going to have to do the same thing over and over and over again. But when Jesus came, all of that changed. Let me take you on a little journey through the New Testament. Very short little journey, most of it in the book of Romans, that helps us understand this. Go with me to Romans chapter 3. Romans 3, verse 23 and 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin is the, the great leveler. Every person has committed sin. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. I don't care who you are. Even my very, very, very pure-minded and pure-hearted wife, she has committed sins. I'm sorry. She has committed sins. So have you. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now listen to verse 24. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now go with me to chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. 
verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the only way that that sin can be taken care of is through death. The wages of sin is death. Jesus willingly paid that price for us, but how he did it is of the utmost importance. He did it as our high priest. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 18. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Jesus, when he died on the cross, did it as our high priest, interceding on our behalf. And there are three words in Hebrews chapter 7 that are like exclamation points to what he did for us. Maybe they jumped out at you just like they did me. Here they are again. The first one's found in verse 22. That makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. He's a guarantor of our relationship with God. Verse 24, he holds his priesthood permanently. It lasts forever. And verse 25, he is able to save to the uttermost. Those are three exclamation points, three things that help us understand exactly what Jesus did for us when he took sin down, if we can project that back up there, Chelsea. He guaranteed that our sin would no longer define us, and he made sure that that would last permanently, and he saved us to the uttermost. That's what he did on the cross, all three of those things. That's pretty cool. It really is. That's what happened on the cross When he took sin down, he guaranteed it was gone permanently to the uttermost. But then he did something else quite interesting. Alive, he brought God down to us. There are three things that you have to know in order to understand this. Number one, the full penalty for sin was paid by Jesus. Number two, your works, no matter how good they are, will never make God love you more. And number three, your sin, no matter how bad it is, will never make God love you less. Those three things are of the utmost importance when you face the empty tomb. 
because you bring all of that with you to that point. It's been taken care of on the cross, but when we come to the tomb and we understand that alive Jesus brings God down to us, what we really come to terms with is the fact that God wants relationship with us and he did all the heavy lifting, so much so that the tomb is empty. And if, like Peter, we will follow Jesus into the tomb, then like Peter and John both, we will follow him out. And when we follow him out, we will live in relationship. We will live, listen, we will live in relationship with God. That's amazing. That's what the tomb does for us. It brings God down in such a way that we can live with him forever. From the day of salvation till forever, we live with him. It never ends. And he has guaranteed it to the uttermost permanently. The empty tomb is the place where we walk in with all of our baggage and we leave it there and we walk out now into a relationship with God. Now you may say that that means that I have to leave all of my sin there. Well, the simple truth of the matter is you're going to continue sinning, but Jesus' penalty on the cross paid for all of that sin. So as you continue in sin, understand this. The Apostle Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that if anyone is in Christ, the old is gone and the new has come. You're getting further and further and further away from that sin every day that you choose to walk with God. Every day that He is a part of your life, that gets more distant from you. If the old is still defining you, you may have to ask yourself whether you have ever entered the tomb. You may understand the cross, but do you understand the tomb? The empty tomb is what helps us understand that I have relationship now with God and that old way of life is shrinking and the new way of life is growing and the new way of life is relational. The new way of life means that I am walking with God every day. I'm growing closer to Him every day. That's what it's all about. I spent a lot of time this past week studying in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, for what Jesus was like post-resurrection. I wanted to go there and, and look at some of the ways that he was relating to people, because for whatever reason, this struck me, maybe not for the first time, but it came back into my mind, that for the 33 years that Jesus lived on this earth, he lived here as both God and man. But when he came back after the resurrection, he was here only as God, and he remains that way today. His humanity was taken care of. So I was really curious to see in his divinity, how was Jesus relating to everybody? And what I was looking for was the ways that he was teaching, correcting, and rebuking them. I did not find that. What I found in the four Gospels was how he was relating to them. Here's what I discovered. In the book of Matthew, two of his favorite ladies had run to the tomb to take care of his body. When they got there, they found that the stone had been rolled away and his body was gone. And They were headed back to find the disciples and on their way back, on the trail that they were walking on, Jesus was hiding behind a tree, a little bit of my own interpretation there, but he stepped out in front of them and the Bible says that he said these exact words to them. He stepped out and said, greetings. Isn't that great? Greetings. If we were to translate that today, it might have sounded like this. Hey, looking for me? And he just appeared. Greetings. Here I am. They ran faster. They went and found the apostles and told them what they had seen. In the Gospel of Mark, we learn that Jesus joined the apostles in the middle of a business meeting. They didn't even know he was alive yet at this point, or they weren't believing it is a better way to say it. And he went and sat down with them, just interrupted their meeting. 
So they're talking about what was going on, and all of a sudden, he's sitting at the table with them. Isn't that a great thing? That's the, the playful side of God. In the Gospel of Luke, we find Jesus walking on the road to Emmaus with two men that were talking about him. They were telling his story, talking about his crucifixion, talking about the rumors of the resurrection, and Jesus walked mile after mile after mile with them, just asking them questions. So really, is that what happened? He died on the cross, you say. Rose from the grave. That's quite interesting. On and on and on he goes until finally Luke tells us that he revealed himself to them, and they were amazed. After that, Luke says that he sat down to a meal with his disciples. In the Gospel of John, he walked through closed, locked doors and surprised people. Then he dealt with Thomas's doubts and subsequently ours. And then this is my favorite part of post-resurrection stories. He taught the disciples how to catch fish. He showed them how to really do it. Everything was relational. He was joining them in their lives, showing up, showing us exactly what he wants with us post-resurrection. After the empty tomb, he just wants to be with us. And he does whatever is necessary to make it happen. He invites us to his party and wants us to do the same. I'll leave you with this illustration of that. My oldest friend in all the world is named Scott Johannes. Scotty and I have known each other, holy buckets, a long time, pushing 40 years. We uh, met in fifth grade, went to school with each other in grade school, middle school, high school. We hunted together, we fished together, we skied together, we played golf together, we played other sports together. Some of those things we were doing while we were supposed to be in school and we weren't. We were just out and enjoying life with each other. When we graduated high school, we went to college together. We were roommates with one another for three years until I got married, at which time he stood beside me and a year later I stood beside him at his wedding. We have done ministry together, we have traveled together, we have stayed connected through the years with each other. Scott turns 50 this fall, in December of this year, and he is doing the most interesting thing. He is throwing a party in which he has invited people across his five decades that have made an impact in his life to join him for that party. Scott lives in Iowa, but the party is in Colorado because his first love is skiing, and he loves the Rockies. So he's going to Colorado, and he's throwing this party, and he has invited all of his close friends and their families to come and join him. I think that's great. He and I were talking yesterday. I said, man, that is just wonderful. He was calling around, seeing who all was going to make it, and we got to talk for couple hours yesterday and we were kicking around different things that were happening in life but we were talking about this party and I said this is a great idea you've said come enjoy life with me doing what I love that's the same invitation that God makes to us exactly the same way he invites us to his party and he wants us to do the same to invite him to ours but the empty tomb must be a part of our life in order for that to happen you got to follow Jesus out of the empty tomb before you can get to a place where you can live with God. Follow him through the empty tomb. Everything is relational after that. It's all about life with him. Follow him through the empty tomb and see where it takes you. Follow him through the empty tomb. Get away from the foot of the cross. Follow him through the empty tomb and start living with Jesus Christ. It's a game changer. Over the next few weeks as we approach Easter, I'm going to show you how much of a game changer it is. I want to show you a number of different things about the empty tomb that maybe you've never thought of, and hopefully it will help you grow in this relational side of living with God. That's our goal. That's where we're going.
I hope you'll be here to join us. Why don't you stand and pray with me? Well, Father in heaven, a lot of us can get hung up like so many others at the cross. And we don't make our way to the tomb. We don't even get there to see that it's empty. We just stay focused on you on the cross. Would you help us get past that? That we might live with you? That we might do life with you every day? That we might invite you into our life as you have invited us into yours? Would you help us with that? That's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.